Hey friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Today we're here to discuss The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Volume 2, by Rod North and Erica Henderson, the great baseball movie, A League of Their Own, and a piece of short fiction called The Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers by Alyssa Wong. But first, Anna has a quiz for me. I do. I have, I think this is the best quiz that has ever been put together by anyone alive ever. So I guess we're going to get on to me losing this quiz. Let's go. No. Okay, Anna, explain the quiz to our listeners so they can know the full context of the humiliation I'm about to endure. So, right, you gave me a task to put together a quiz for you, and I did that. It was one of the greatest mornings I have ever spent at work because I had so much fun trying to find old school science fiction blurbs or kind of like introductions to novels as per they are written on Goodreads. And I put together four items. Three of them are real science fiction novels. One of them is not. And you have to, you know, find out which one is not the real one. And most of them are kind of like old school. I think the youngest one is from 1993. Right. Are you ready for this? Uh, No, but let's just. Okay. So I have four items. Remember, four items. Three of them are real science fiction novels. One of them is not. Book number one. The future is here. The future is now. Machines can fly. Computers speak. And dark aliens who only wish to feed have made contact. Will the indomitable human spirit fight off those who would stomp on human greatness? A new story from a great master of science fiction. Book number two. Can a 700-year-old Transylvanian find true love with a Rysamian fishwoman? Book 3. Her oval face was beautiful in the extreme. Her every feature finely chiseled and exquisite. Her eyes large and lustrous and her head surmounted by a mass of coal-black waving hair caught loosely in a strange yet becoming coiffure. Similar in face and figure to woman of Earth, she was nevertheless a true Martian. Book 4. Amanda is an astronaut who roller skates through the halls of NASA and a subparticle physicist who can enter the mind of Mary Shelley. With her magical cat, Schrodinger, she finds herself in confrontation with the ultimate seductress, the 11 million mile high dancer. Now, which one is not a true book? I have to choose. You have to choose. How am I ever supposed to figure this out? <laughs> oh my god. So three of them are real. Yes. Three of those highly amazing and amusing blurbs 
actual from real books that exist right now in the world. Oh my god. I know. They I all know. sound plausible. That's the that's the ter- that's the terrible part. <laughs> These all sound like they could exist. And they do, most of them. Except one doesn't. Okay. Yes. Oh my god. This is revenge for the Marvel character quiz. Yes, isn't of course it? it is. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So the one that is not real, is it book three? Book three was her oval face was beautiful in the extreme. Her every feature finely chiseled and exquisite. Her eyes large and lustrous and her hair surmounted by a mass of coal black. Right? Yeah. No, that's a real book. Oh no, that's, I got it wrong. A, that's a book called A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Of course. Of course it is. Of course I chose the word. It's a series. <laughs> they all sound equally horrible. Okay, okay, so I got the first one wrong. So what's what's the one that's not real? The one that's not real is the future is here, the future is now, machines can fly, computers speak. That's I made that up. Well, I would have never chosen that one. It sounds so generic that like it could be a it could be any story ever. <laughs> my personal favorite. No, I don't know which one. My favorite favorite. Can a seven here? A 700-year-old Transylvanian find true love with a Rysamian fish woman. That's a novel called I, Vampire by Jodie Scott. And finally, Amanda is an astronaut who roller skates through the halls of NASA. And she's also a subpatical physicist who can enter the mind of Mary Shelley. That's called Amanda and an 11-million-mile high dancer and by Carol Hill, and I bought that book for me and for you so that we can read this because it sounds amazing. Apparently, it's one of the classics of feminism in science fiction. Have you ever heard of this? No, never. Never. So there <laughs> you have it. You have that book coming to you right now in the post. You're welcome. Wow, thank you so much for <laughs> such a thoughtful gift. I totally do not win any space fees. It's really sad and embarrassing. I'm really sad. I'm I'm the only one so far in this team that actually has golden space bees. I know what's happening. Mm-hmm. I'll have another one of those quizzes soon for you. Oh my god! Uh, as we've established, I'm just clearly not great at classic sci-fi. This is great, though. Who would have thought that these books were real? Like, none of them even sound real. The only one that sounds real is the one that that I made up. Sometimes we are wrong. It happens. Sometimes the publishing industry is just full of surprises. Yes, exactly. Squirrel Girl Volume 2, Squirrel You Know It's True by Ryan North and Erica Henderson is the second volume of the greatest comic ever. Doreen Green has the powers of both Squirrel and Girl, and she's got the greatest BFF ever. And they go on adventures and save the world by punching things and eating nuts and kicking butts. And I love this comic. I love the stomach thing. Yeah, it's delightful. It's my favorite comic ever.
Is it? I mean, we knew it was good because we read the first volume and we both love it very much. And I think the same things that we loved about it are sustained in this second volume. Mm-hmm. With the extra delight of having tons of Nancy, a few flashbacks, and some great villains, including a hippo guy. Oh my God. Who, oh no. And there's a dinosaur in the first issue, um, issue five, actually. And there's a trip to the zoo, which was so much fun. And then there is a cameo by none other than Loki and also the two tours. I mean, seriously. It is is actually pretty packed full of stuff. It is. I forgot when I read it the first time that it actually had so much stuff in it. I do want to point out, like, in the first issue, they are trapped in the Statue of Liberty because dinosaurs are attacking. And it's Nancy and a bunch of rando people. And they're telling stories about Squirrel Girl that are not actually true. They're just making them up. They're writing fanfic, which is great. And they tell a story about Captain America and his new partner, Bathlass. Yes. Squirrel Girl has to come and, like, rescue him. And... Rescue him from what, Renee? Rescue him from what? Tell us. Fascism. Fascism. There is a line. Yeah, there is a line where she's like, hey, Cap, what's going on? And he's like, stay back, squirrel girl. I've finally seen the light. And now I know democracy is for stupid babies. Forget freedom. Make mine fascism. I know. And this was from 2015, right? Mm -hmm. So now we wondered. Yeah. Like, did they know what was going to happen? Are they, like, making fun of the decisions at Marvel? Foreshadow. Is this, like, them trying to pave the way? Can we we contact them and ask? Do you think they would reply? Do you think they would answer to this? I don't know. Ryan North, we need to know. Did you know the truth? Did you know? Did you know, know, Ryan North? And, like, there's, like, a scene where he... Like, in the very next panel, Steve is, like... I love dictatorships. It's it's so like so forced and so in your face, Raj. And he has like um a t shirt. Uh-huh. Totalitarianism is totally great. <laughs> but that lasts like two pages only. Yeah, it's not very long. It's like a it's, it's like long. a retro throwback to you know, old squirrel girl. So yeah, it's like, because all the stories in this first issue are just people telling stories that they think are about squirrel girl, but really they're just running thick. It's really great. Someone else just confuses squirrel girl with Spider-Man and confuses the two stories. And it's like, dude, this is Spider-Man. This is not squirrel girl. I was having a discussion with somebody and I don't remember who it was, but they were like, I read Nancy as trans. Hmm. Which was an interesting idea to me. I'm just like, oh, what? I didn't know why. And they're like, I don't know. I just do. And I'm like, that's, I really wish I knew who this person was. Person, are you, do you listen to this podcast? Please come out of the woodwork because I've forgotten who you were. Because I think this is the greatest headcanon that I've ever heard. Well, the thing is, why not, right? Yeah. I mean, even there is nothing textually to say either way. So why do we read her as cis? You know, why do we force that narrative into characters just because it's, well, it's just because that's 
we we normalize that kind of narrative, don't we? Mm-hmm. She could totally be. And I love Nancy. Actually, I'm thinking of like my favorite like sidekick type character out of all the comics I read is Nancy. She's super great for many reasons. One of that she's supportive of Squirrel Girl. Two, because she's completely unfazed by things like by being covered in squirrels. And there is this really great conversation at the beginning of one of the issues as well, because she's covered by squirrels and she used that as a squirrel armor, right? Mm-hmm. And then she was like, so then why I am hurting the squirrels when I punch? And then squirrel go, no, 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 no. They just come away from your hand. And then they decide not to use that again because it would hurt squirrels. And that's one of the things about this comic that I find so... Uh, a breath of fresh air because it's just so nice. Nancy and Squirrel Girl, they just tr- get through things by having conversations and talking to people. Sometimes they are throw, you know, throwing punches, but most of it is really them being nice to people. So, for example, you have Hippo the Hippo, which is one of the villains that appear. And then Nancy has this whole conversation with him because it, it just so happens that Hippo used to be a Hippo. And then one day he woke up and he could speak. And then, of course, who would, who would give him a job because he has no education? And this is the whole conversation that she's having with him. And she's like, I completely understand you, dude. That's completely true. And then she finds him a job and he's no longer a villain. I also oh. liked that when he came into the scene, like we got the return of the Deadpool's God to Supervillain cards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, this is just so great. Those cards are great, where it outlines all the stuff about the villain. And I remember at the bottom of that card, there was, of course, there's a card for this hippo character. I'm paid with a card and the word Shimichanga, Shimichanga, Shimichanga. So I'm like, oh my God, this is the greatest. <laughs> I also love that in the intros, the way they do it, they do it like a Twitter layout. They did it in the first volume and they continued it here where you have the characters talking like they're on Twitter. Tony like often makes like an appearance, which is really good for me because I really, really like him and Doreen together. And I'm really sad that like he hasn't been in the comic as himself yet. I'm like, guys, can you just make this happen for me before this comic ends, please? Please send Doreen and Tony on a on a, an adventure together, please. It's gonna be so good. It would be so fun. Also, this issue, the second or third issue, is when they meet Chipmunk Hunk and Koi Boy. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But the best thing about that though is how that prompts um Doreen to take um, Nancy to a zoo and get her to talk to every single animal there just to see if she can communicate with the other types of animals so she can be a superhero too but it, she doesn't need to do that she's already a superhero which brings me back to talk about uh, another side of Nancy is that she's a fanfic writer as well and she writes fanfic about Asgard and cat where Thor. everybody is a cat uh <laughs> cat Thor and she's not even just not she's not just a fanfic writer, she's also a fan artist. Which is super she's a cool. fan artist. True. That's so totally true. And then in the last uh, couple of issues, they you know, there's the villain is someone from Asgard, and then Thor and Odin's son come into the comics and they, they are trying to help them. And then Nancy gets to go to Asgard and she's totally freaks out and she like she meets Loki and she's like oh my god it's Loki listen dude I know that you know you have done several things that I I don't agree with but I totally love you 
And then I think that's probably everybody. <laughs> Am I the only one who just doesn't care that much about Loki? Yes. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is indeed sad. But then he 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 just morphs because he's a shapeshifter. And then he gets a cat head. And that just pieces off Odin's son so much. And we are like, this is so great. I love them. Part of what makes this coming so great for me is not the puns, as you might think, but instead the optimism of it. It never stops, like that optimism. I've talked about how I'm a real big fan of Ryan Norris writing, period, and how just super upbeat and hopeful and funny he is. And so that's why when I got to the end of this volume and you have a, a bunch of guest issues, I was not impressed. Did they throw you off? I said in my review of this volume that it was really weird to watch artists jam Doreen into Do Division because basically they draw her totally opposite of Erica Henderson. That's true. Like, That's very the, true. Especially the first one. The Christmas special. Yeah. She's just dressed like every other... Generic superhero lady where yeah. there's boob big, socks. Big boobs and tight clothes and like really uncomfortable positions as well. Like, yeah. there is this really one panel here when she is just crawling out of the window. And it's just such a weird sexualized position for the character that it's just not cool at all. Yeah, there's like a an art spread at the very back, like Age of Heroes number three. Yeah, that's the one I'm looking at right yeah. now. And I think I'll probably just take a photo of it and put it in the show notes because, yeah. holy shit. Because it's not only her as well. You have three other ladies here. And, and, and there is one of them that is posing with the butt sticking out. Lady, you aren't going to get scoliosis. Well, she's fictional. So more, it's, it's more like, dude, you're a sexist asshole, whoever drew yeah, you. And you are giving this lady scoliosis. <laughs> we could just blame it on them. So yeah, <laughs> I really like this volume. But having that stuff at the end was just really off-putting. I just want nobody but Erica Henderson to draw Doreen Green forever. Please. I want to talk about how she beat up every single Avenger. You know, there is one one issue where the Avengers are completely going crazy because they have been their their brains have been messed by this squirrel god from Asgard, I guess. And they are all behaving really, really poorly. And basically Squirrel Girl beats them all up. So just to recap, Squirrel Girl beats all the Avengers in one single go. And I think this is why Squirrel Girl can never be a part of the Avengers, because there would be no story. The villains would come and she was like, dude, seriously, let's talk. Then she would either beat them up to a pulp in two seconds or just talk him out of doing whatever it is that they are doing. So basically, this is why Squirrel Girl cannot be an Avenger and will not be part of any main storylines because she's she far mem- too powerful. But isn't she a member of some Avengers team? I think she is, probably. I'm just making things up now. Because in this comic, they have Steve Rogers being being old because that's the thing that happened in the comics. He, his serum stuff, or whatever. It's comics. <laughs> Fuck. So he was like, maybe if you all weren't such giant dapper babies. And then he was like... Sorry, we can't. And I think it's Spider-Man. He's like, sorry, we can't all have our senior citizen discount cards. Like, you grandpa flag for pants. And I'm just like... <laughs> I would read Ryan North riding the Avengers forever. Just, like, squabbling little kids, right? Yeah, basically. It's, like, it's so accurate. 
But no, I agree. She solves everything, mostly in nonviolent ways. I just love her. I just love her so much. It's it's very optimistic. This is a really great word to describe it. And if you are reading comics, you are usually. It's really interesting because whenever I think about comics or the comics that I used to read before, you always had that feel of optimism and hope. And for many years now, things have turned into grim and gritty with Civil War and you have the new Captain America doing that thing that we know that he's doing. And Squirrel Girl just goes against that trend. And I'm really thankful for that because it just reminds me that comics can be really laid back, relaxing and fun stuff to read. It's probably other people can can take the same things out of other comics. I just find that Squirrel Girl is the one that does that for me. KJ recently read a book by Lynn Weldon called The Cape Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. She said that it talked about the cyclical nature of superheroes. And I haven't read the book, so I don't know and I can't confirm and we didn't talk about it that deeply. But I also think that that point that she mentioned, the cyclical nature where you have superheroes as optimistic and heroic and then you get a pushback and it flips and they go dark and gritty and... I'm just waiting for this whole dark and gritty portion to be over because I think that's where we are with some of the comics that we read. Squirrel Girl, obviously not, because uh, as I said, Wishra North is great. Maybe the grim and gritty is a reflection of what's going on in the world right now, but the world also has hopeful things. And I would argue that you need the hopeful and optimistic things so that you can fight and live through the grim and gritness of the world. So how many space beats would you give this volume? I would give it five space bees. Five whole space bees. I would, yes. I would give the collection that was done by Rod North and Erica Henderson five space bees. And then I would give the edition stuff negative 800 space bees. <laughs> I just ignored that. But you are right. It's just so off-putting and grating. Don't judge this collection by the extras. And don't get excited about the extras because they're not that good. But definitely read it for the actual yep. issues and Nancy being amazing and, and, and saving the day. movie starring Tom Hanks and Gina Davis and tells the story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League that was formed during World War II. I'm going to admit up front that I watched this movie and cried the whole way through. At every point where there was a sad moment or a happy moment, I was in tears. Was that the first time that we watched it? No, I've seen this movie dozens of times. This was a movie that I used to rewatch constantly. Really? Do you like baseball? I don't care about baseball. So I watched this when it first came out because I used to be a Tom Hanks fan girl at that point. Remember that point? He was kind of like Hollywood hotshot. Really weird looking back, but yes. Right? I know. I know. I watched because of Tom Hanks. And at that stage, I was what? 1992, you said? So, God, I was so young and untested. 
you know, I think that movie went over my head completely for what it was. I watched it for Tom Hanks. What I got from from it was Tom Hanks. And I remembered having liked it, but not having loved it. And I was really looking forward to watching it again right now with you. And it's a completely different movie. It's not the one that I watched when I was 16. Why do you think that is? Because I am a different person. And I paid attention to other stuff. I think I was really into the whole thing with Jimmy and and his alcoholism and, and his story arc. And now I couldn't care less. There's not even that much of that there. I know. So what did you do with, with the rest of the movie? Like I Either I ignored it or I was... I, I just wasn't aware of feminism, of those questions. And now there are sorts of things about the movie that really speak to me. I'm actually a World War II buff, which is something that at 16 would have been incomprehensible to me or unthinkable even. But since moving to England, I have watched and consumed so much so many books and TV shows and movies about World War II. And it's something that really interests me, especially the roles of women within it. And of course, then that movie falls squarely right bang in the middle of that because it's about a baseball team of women when all the men went off to war. So that's part of what interests me. And of course, I know Gina Davis from I, I never used to like her in movies when I was 16, 17. Now I like her and I also admire her for the work that she does off screen as well. So bringing all of that into the movie made it a completely different movie to me. And that's so interesting how things can change depending on who you are at the point where you watch it. The difference for me is that when I watch it the first time, I empathize a lot more with the younger sister, Kit. But this time, I was like, boy, you are an asshole to your sister. That relationship between them makes them very, very personal. Because it's almost like me and my sister. My sister is also like Kit. So she's an asshole, is that what you're saying? No, she's not an asshole, but she has had issues all her life from being compared to me. Because I was the golden child. I was this smart one. Do you know what my sister told me? She discovered now at 36 that she loves to read and she's been reading a lot and she never did that because growing up, all that she heard were people saying, oh, Ana Paula is so smart. She reads so much. Why don't you? And she said that she used to refuse to read because of that. And we never knew. We just assumed that she didn't like it because she wasn't that smart. So watching that relationship in the movie just brought it home how my sister felt all those years. So I kind of like understand Kit. She's an asshole, yes, but I kind of understand where she's coming from, from experiencing how things like that can be really hurtful to younger kids. But going back to the movie, there is this one small scene the entire movie is about white people, white women, right? You have, you can, you don't even see people of color anywhere, and you have one tiny scene, one tiny scene where one of the balls is thrown off the field, I guess, and then one woman of color, a black African American woman, is standing there, and she picks up the ball and she throws it. 
the main character just shakes her head saying, wow, this is a good throw. And the, and, and the black woman goes, yes, I know, but I cannot play without words. And that's the only part of the movie where you see anything like that. And I am torn because it's so well done in one way because there's so much that is sad without being sad at the same time really movie is that the only thing that you could have done with people of color but then again the 90s so i'm kind of curious how much control the people who made the movie had over social commentary i mean you're right on both levels it's good it's good to see it but it's also like that's the bare minimum of a nod to actual history i actually had tried to find more history about this the girls baseball league and it's actually kind of hard why haven't there been like tons of books written about this i know and i was actually a little bit upset upset i said that this is not actually a real story not this characters at least is a fictionalized account of the the league so i wonder if this is this is because there is a lack of you know any collection of oral histories or first uh, primary source documents or anything like that relating to that did it even get written down exactly this is why i, I was I, I said oral history because someone could have collected those stories so yes i wish there were more stories about this i really enjoy reading about the roles of women uh, during world war Two and what happened to them after that because as we saw here, the league didn't last very long. Actually, I have a question for you. Might You might be able to answer, but, but then again, maybe not. Do you know if there is a professional baseball league for women right now in, in the United States? Is that a thing? I don't think so. Because I never hear about women's... Oh, that's a lie. There's this woman who just broke a record of some sort. I don't know anything about baseball. I know nothing about baseball, so I don't know why you're asking me. I'm sorry. I, I, don't thought follow- were, I thought you were American. I am American, but I don't like sports. I don't find them interesting. So I don't follow. So if you're like, how? what's the state of feminism in professional sports? I'm going to be like, I'm clueless. I have no clue. But it's interesting because what gets here, it's all male basketball, male baseball, male everything. I know it would be interesting. If anybody knows, can can you let us know on Twitter? Another thing this movie did really well was to reflect the way the war could impact family and wives, especially. Because we see Dottie the whole time. She's really focused on her husband coming back from war and starting a family. And then we also see one of the women on the team lose her husband. So sad. The war is pretty well represented in this movie through the absence of explicit commentary about it. You have the leagues forming and the men often talk about the war, but you don't get like a lot of explicit discussion about like the politics of it. Instead, you're seeing the ramifications of having one. A lot of these women have people in the war. They, they lose their husbands. They, their husbands come home hurt. Pretty much whenever something with the war came up and somebody was sad, I was like in tears. Because war is just the worst. The big push of the movie, the plot, is that one of the people involved in the league works really hard to make it a success. Really, it's the women in the movie who make it a success. And he like transforms that into like a huge following, publicity-wise. And then the owners are like, well, the war is ending. We're getting out. You know, the men will come home. We can go back to regular baseball, normal baseball. 
and he's really upset about this, this guy. And he he's like, let me prove to you that this can be profitable, and then you can just give me the league. You can just give, let me run this. And so you get these different views. You have these sexist dudes, and like the owner of the league, Harvey, is super sexist. And then you have mm-hmm. Jimmy Dugan, who's their coach, who's played by Tom Hanks, is super sexist when the movie starts. And then you have this this guy, I think, I forget who he's played by, and he is super invested in these women, and he sees how good they are and how much they love what they're doing, and he like works really hard to keep them in the game. But then, on the other hand, like at the very beginning of the movie, we see as everything's coming together, the league is coming together, we have these women doing this ad for the radio. Yes, I do remember that scene. Where this woman was like, "They're gonna, you're gonna mask, you're gonna make our women masculine." It was the most surreal. Yeah. And I like, like how what will, what will happen when our men come back from war to find their women doing things that are male things? Yeah. You had women who were definitely against progress for women, women being able to do things. Well, of course, they were indoctrinated, just and, like the rest of everybody. And I liked that. So you you think about a movie about women in baseball and women doing things that are normalized for men, and you would think that oh, well, hey, they're not going to show stuff where it represents. A nuanced history and for all this movie like fails on race and sort of talking about only white women i do think that it provides like this really interesting nuanced view of women through multiple points of view mm-hmm. and it does a really good job of that and it also shows how when you listen to women when you listen to women you learn how to empathize with them which we see happen in Jimmy Dugan's story where he's super sexist and gross and through working with these women and as colleagues he becomes less of an asshole. Yeah, grows to respect them. And I really think that the movie does a good job on those levels. It actually, for being released in 1992, it actually holds up really well. I guess because this is a historical movie, but like, overall it holds up. That's true. I thought so too. Because I can watch older historical movies and be like, whoa, no, this is not good at all, makeup-wise or film-wise or something. But this one really sticks together. Also Madonna. I forgot about that for some reason. I don't know why. Because that was a huge part of the publicity of this movie. I remember it, actually. Oh. Her being in this movie and doing some of the soundtrack was a big deal when this movie first came out. And I remember it because all all my, my mom and a bunch... Of her friends were like super into Madonna, so when this movie came out, it was a really big deal. I remember the soundtrack for this movie. Actually. Oh, I don't remember that on cassette. Oh, cassette! Oh my god, throwback, throwback. And I can't actually can't remember if it was official or if it was just a like something somebody put together. I can't remember now. I'm gonna assume it was official, but yeah. So that was. It was wonderful. I actually really liked all the side characters, too. They did a really great job of fleshing out the other players. Well, most of them. Obviously, you don't have enough time to do every single female character. No, yeah. The only part of this that I was just like, really? Was the constant sexual harassment that Jimmy Dugan shoved onto the chaperone. And it felt just so tonally weird. Like, the narrative was okay with it. The narrative was okay with his behavior. Playing for laps or... Yeah, instead of being critical. Well, come to 1992, I guess. Mm. 1992. We were not yet fully aware of consent. Well, not that, not that we are that much better right now, but maybe. 
Also, at the very beginning of the movie, we have a scene where Dottie and Kit are playing pickup baseball, and Dottie's like, stop trying to go for the high ones. Stop trying to hit at the high ones, because Kit keeps striking out. And then at the very end of the movie, where Dottie's team and Kit's team that she's been traded to are facing each other in the World Series, that moment comes back where Dottie immediately goes to the pitcher and says she can't lay off the high ones in order to beat her. I think they both grow up a lot. Because, like, the old Dottie, the one who started in the league, might have not told the pitcher that detail about her sister. Yeah, because she would have protected her sister. But instead she makes her sister work for it, and her and Kit obviously gets, like, eventually gets the hit and wins the game for her team. And I just thought that was a really nice way to show how you can grow up, because I think both of them grew up. Not only as sisters, but as women on their own and their relationship, but also Kitsch then proves that, you know, there are certain things that I can't do, even though you think I can't. So if this had been a film with two guys who are brothers, you would have gotten this emotion, angst, written ending, um, sort of like Warrior with Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton. But instead, what happens is you get this emotional scene where they just make up. Like, they put their differences aside, and they resolve things. Yeah, and they were both really stoic in that scene, one day, kind of, like, distant. Yeah, the, because the movie is told in, like, a flashback format. You have an older Dottie who is going to the opening of the Baseball Hall of Fame, where the women's team are being inducted into it. It's flashing back to the summer where she played in the league, and you're not sure whether she and Kit are speaking to each other and the flashback sort of resolves it but the framing device is like oh you'll get to see Kit there and you already see Dottie going oh I don't like her husband blah 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 so you actually don't even know the status of their relationship it's yeah and even though at that point in the movie in the, in the flashback where they make up after the game and depart Dottie goes home to start her family and Kit stays in the city to like get a job you still don't know, like, what's the status of the relationship. You don't know until the very, very end when you find out, like, that it's okay. They just don't see each other very much. Which is also kind of bittersweet, but sort of true to life, because they're very different people. Yeah, exactly. But you like this movie? I love this movie. It was really good for me, too, except for the part where I cry through most of it. I would give it four Space Bees. I would also give it four Space Bees. Excellent. Daughters of Starving Mothers by Alyssa Wong was originally published in Nightmare Magazine in October of 2015. Anna, would you please summarize this for us? It's about a girl who is, I guess, a type of monster who has internalized a narrative that says she's a monster and she consumes feelings. I kind of like thought of it as an emotional vampire in which she sucks out life and thoughts and feelings out of people so that she won't starve. Her mother consumed her own father and put him inside a jar. And she goes about life trying not to be like her mother, but more or less 
being like her mother, it's complicated. And she falls in love with someone. It doesn't go well. There's an open ending to that. The Booksmongers actually published a story that reminded me of this called The Muscle Eater by Octavia yeah. Cade. I felt the same way about that story that I do about this one, which is it's just not for me. I do not care for short fiction that does this because I don't care about the characters. So it's just like, oh, this conceit. And I don't give a shit because I haven't spent enough time with these characters to care at all what's happening to them. Okay, um, I have an answer to that. I would wager that those stories are less about the characters and more about the ideas that the characters embody. So in The Muscle Eater, of course, I am biased because I bought the story, I edited the story, and I published the story. It's about gender and freedom and the type of monstrosity that we never expect from women. And yet women can be as monstrous as men. And Hungry Daughters is more or less the same thing. It has a really great beginning because it starts with a date. You start with the main character, Jen, going on a date with this guy named Harvey, I think. This guy is a white dude and it's an Ivy League dude. And he talks about, you know, out of his ass, about his car and his money. And this woman is sitting there and she's so bored. And then something happens in which she can hear his thoughts and his feelings. And he's talking about how he just wants to fuck her and stomp on her and eventually his thoughts morph into wanting to kill her so he's a sociopath psychopath killer usually this is the beginning of a story that ends with the woman dumped naked by a rubbish bin and the man walking away after having done unspeakable things to the woman as a victim this is subverted here because that's how he ends up after she consumes his horrible, horrible feelings. I really liked this story, actually. I think it's a very rich story. I understand completely what you're saying. I don't think it's a story that you read for character. I don't think it's a story that you... I don't know if you sympathize with the character or not. I ended up sympathizing with the character because she was going through something that put her against her own heritage, against her own mother, and facing her. I think she, she was thinking that they were both alone. And in the end, they weren't. There were other people like them in the world. And then she had a choice to make about what kind of person she wanted to be in a way, I guess. And she plays with the dark side a bit, but eventually she comes back to the light side, maybe, when she tries to save the woman that she liked, that was her friend. It's interesting that you mentioned Octavia Cage because Octavia Cage is actually a contributor to the book Smugglers and she's writing a series of essays called Food and Horror in which she examines the close proximity of food and horror. And she actually talks about this story, I think, in her first column. And she made really interesting points about uh, about consumption, about uh, victims and predators, about how equals and unequals have a play in this narrative. And how do you break away from all of those things? I don't know what kind of creature Jen is, but I think it's maybe a mythological creature from a, an East Asian mythology culture. I would like to know, actually, if anyone knows what kind of creature Jen is, I would like to know. Um, I read as a vampire-like person that sucks out of feelings, out of people. I can just talk about 
ideas like this without having to go through the rigmarole of seeing these characters that I'm never going to care about. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I don't need yeah. I don't need the fictional framework to just have these discussions. If I'm going to read a story, the thing about most short fiction, and I just don't like a lot of short fiction because I don't get to know who the people are to see how they're actually coping with the problems that they're going through. And so you say it's more about the ideas. That's like reading a book for the plot. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of reader. I have a preference for character-driven narratives as well. I have a preference for character-driven narratives too. But in a, a story that it's so well written like this one, I can make an exception for plot-driven narratives. I cannot make myself care about characters who I don't spend that much time with. It's like wanting me to like deeply empathize with somebody's entire past if I meet them on the street for five minutes. So do you? would you say you have a preference for longer short stories because of that? Or it doesn't matter how short or how long they are. It's just a matter of how much the main characters are centralized, I guess. Things that are shorter than 10,000 words just pretty much aren't going to work for me. Ah. You prefer novelettes. Let's so, like, this, if a short story does work for me, it's going to have to be, like, really something really specific that's hitting other interests. Like, I, li- I really liked Cat Pictures, Please, which is super, super short. But it's also hitting stuff that I really, really like, like AI and cats. But if, like, it's a... It's a premise that I don't really care about. Like, I don't really care about reading about monster women. I know a lot of people like writing about monster women. I get it. I understand. It's just not something I'm into. I really like reading about monstrous women. I think the last one I really liked was Nimona. And that was not short. But did you consider... Well, yeah, I guess Nimona's a monstrous woman. But it, it's just... It's such a lighter narrative, too. Because this one is horror. Yeah, and that's another thing. I don't like horror. You picked a story for us to read where it's like all these things. Don't like it. Too short. Horror. What do you think about the fact that it won the Nebula and it's up for a Hugo Award? I think it's fine. Like, it's not a bad story. I'm just saying it's not for me. For me. Which is fair enough. If you're going to have a discussion launching off of the story about heritage and how you move on from the practices of your parents... I mean, I was kind of trying to think about something that would be analogous to my life based on the story itself. Because obviously, I think there also might be a culture thing happening here. So I was trying Mm -hmm. to compare it to something. And closest I could come would be to like compare it to like a religion. So if you're raised in a religion that your parents are part of, and you get these certain narratives about yourself, about how you relate to the world, about how you grow up and how you fit into the world as your own person but then you like leave that structure because it's for whatever reason but it's toxic because whatever else and you go out and you have to like figure out you have to figure out things for yourself and that's the only way that I could come around to whatever this character was going through it was really difficult it doesn't it doesn't fit completely but I think I sort of I sort of got there so I felt bad for this character like the whole time just like you are being ignorant and also kind of an asshole to this friend that you say you care about I just she was trying to protect her you don't protect people by lying to them true what i took away from the story is the value of transparency and honesty which was completely missing from the story because obviously the mother didn't teach jen the stuff she needed to know either maybe 
because she didn't know or maybe she was just keeping it from her. We I don't think it was ever made clear because Jen thought she and her mother were isolated and alone. But exactly, they yeah. And the woman that Jen meets later doesn't tell her the full truth either because she knows about the woman that Jen loves and cares about, her friend. And so she could have told her at any time and doesn't. And so what I took away from the story mostly wasn't the whole part about like monstrous women or whatever else, but it was about the lies our family tells us, the lies that culture will try to tell us, and the importance of being honest with the people that you care about. That's absolutely a great reading of that story. I just missed out on all the other stuff that everybody else likes, I think. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I would actually read more about her that's not horror. I, I haven't read anything else by her, actually. I need to look it up. Because I really liked her. I like. I just really liked her writing style. That's one thing that I, I did like. I did that, too. I'm really curious to see what she writes next. I'm going to check it out, definitely. It's just that this specific story wasn't for me. But you liked it a whole lot. I did. Five I really space enjoyed bees. it. Four space bees. Four? Only four? Yeah. Four. Yes, four space bees. It's very short. I would like more. Maybe you should write her and ask her to write you a sequel. What happened to Aiko, Alisa Wong? going to do Rex. Anna, what have you got this week? Netflix has done a reboot of an 80s cartoon called Voltron. I never heard of Voltron before. It was, I am pretty sure it was not on Brazil uh, when I was growing up. If there are any Brazilians listening to this, do you remember Voltron? Was it, was it a thing? I, it was totally not a thing for me. But then I saw people talking about it and I started to watch it. It's basically... Five dudes astronauts, they become like paladins of the galaxy. And they have five giant lion robots that they fly together. Each one gets a color in a type of lion robot thing. And then they combine and they form this huge giant robot person called Voltron. And that's the defender of the galaxies. And they need to like save people and free the galaxy from this, the forces of evil. And the five dudes, they are amazing. And they're a bunch of people of color. And there are really adorable mice that help them. And swords. And each of them has like a powerful weapon that comes out of their robots. And it's connected to them. And, and there are three guys. They are so cute. And I think I totally shipped the three of them together. Is that a thing, Renee? I'm sure it's a thing. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. It is totally a thing. Of course it is a thing. I'm so sorry. Uh, so, yes, I recommend it. Voltron on Netflix. On Twitter, you were like, you should watch this because you can ship these guys. That was your yeah. selling point for me. Yeah. So what do you have for recommendation? I have serious anxiety. And I bite my nails really badly. But I've stopped. And it's mostly because I'm getting back into nail polishes, which I was really big into when I was a kid. And so I've been scouring the internet for cool polishes. Now, I grew up in rural Arkansas. And so back then, when I wanted a glitter polish, I would have to buy the glitter and like manually mix it into whatever polish I wanted to use it. Because these like fancy micro glitter polishes and stuff were not being sold where I lived. And you, the internet at the time did not exist. 
in the in the way we know it now. So online shopping was like super suspicious. It was not a thing. And I found this woman who has her own business and she makes her own polishes. And she has a YouTube channel. It's Just Face 90. I've watched a bunch of other videos by other people and I've searched through a bunch of other indie brands. And this is my favorite indie brand that I have found so far. She makes the type of polishes that I used to love when I was little that I would actually try to make myself. P.S. Hers are better. <laughs> <laughs> and I ordered from her two different polishes. One is called Double Rainbow. It's like a white crelly and it's got a bunch of rainbow glitters in it. Another one is called Kaleidoscope, which you have to, which is a topper. You layer it over a color. It's got a bunch of transparent hexes that are different colors in it. And I just love her stuff so much. It's so pretty. And so her business is called nonzerolacquer.com. And I would like to recommend her business if you like nail polish. That's magical. I didn't know that you could actually do your own nail polish. I mean, um, you can. Yeah, a lot of in, like a lot of there's a lot of indie companies doing nail polish now. But yeah, so that's my that's my rec. So that's wear, a good Christmas present for you. Yeah, wear polish so you don't bite your nails, which actually prevents me from biting my nails, which is why I've gone back to it and how I found this site that I really like. It's the end of another episode. Anna, thank you so much for recording with me. Thank you for being such a great producer, Renee. Thank you for being such a great co-host. Thank you for being such a goddamn treasure. Thank you for being the best space bee princess there ever was in any universe. Thank you for being the impersonation of a golden space bee. God damn it! I don't know what else to go with. <laughs> I win. You win this time. <laughs> Our music this week is by Boxcat Games, Broke for Free, and Chuki Music. Our pretty art was drawn by Ira. To commission Ira for art of your own, visit them on Tumblr at justira.tumblr.com. Click the commission button at the top of their blog, and you can also hit them up on Twitter at It's Just Ira to ask about art or to tell them thanks for making us look so good. Thanks, Ira. Plus, last week we got our eighth rating on iTunes. So Woo-hoo! thank you, Anonymous Space B. You really made our day. If anyone else would like to make our day, feel free to drop by iTunes and leave a review and tell people how great we are because we're really great. Anna, on a scale of one Space B to five Space Bs, how great are we? A thousand Space Bs. Exactly. To catch us between episodes, you can find the show's Twitter at Fangirl Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Renee. And me at Booksmugglers. Plus, Anna, did you know that we have a super awesome newsletter? Oh my god, do I know it. Every time I get our own newsletter, I get a smile on my face. Because it's so nice. And I think everybody should subscribe to it. And as always, y'all, thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye.
Today we're here to discuss... What are we discussing? Shit, hang on. I'm good. <laughs> hang on. It's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. I can figure this out. Hang on. <sighs> Deep breath. Don't laugh. Don't laugh at me at it. You're laughing at me. Stop! What's this? <laughs> I was just like, what are we discussing? I forgot already. Oh, this is going to be the um, outtake for this show. For this episode. Please include this in the end. Thank you. 